Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Joker and I'm happy to be joined by a couple of recurring guests who are join, joining me in tandem for the first time. Uh, Nick Menta. Nick, thanks for joining me. Hey Josh, how are you? Good. And Lissa Koshbakti. Lissa, thanks for coming back. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, no, Lissa was just here a couple weeks ago for It Too, but I knew she was very excited about Joker, and uh, Nick's just a big fan of a lot of Batman content in general, so I knew he'd be a fun person to have for this one as well. Uh, Joker is the newest movie from writer-director Todd Phillips, who you might know from a lot of movies that are not like the Joker, <laughs> including the Hangover movies and Old Trip and Road School and things like and Road Trip and Old School and things like that. It stars Joaquin Phoenix, who is a very the latest very decorated actor to tackle this role, and it is the origin story of the Joker as he starts out as Arthur Fleck, a struggling clown and aspiring stand-up comedian who wants to aspire to better things in life, but is hamstrung by his past, his mental illness, and all kinds of other things. And I don't really feel the need to get much more of a synopsis from the movie than that, because if <laughs> anyone knows anything about this movie there, or anyone listening probably already knows just about everything about what happens in this movie. And has seen some other version of the Joker on screen before, so I'm not going to ramble on and give a bunch of backstory, but uh, Lisa, I first want to start with you, because you've been coming on this podcast several times this year now, and uh, Nick, I think since the last time you came on, like, you know, I give people the chance to, like, plug, like, their social media and stuff like that, because that's just the thing people do on podcasts, but then my friend Fred, who does the podcast a lot, all of a sudden turned that segment of the podcast into, like, Recommendation Corner, where it's like, oh, I've been watching this, and you should watch this lately, and every time, and every time, uh, like, Liz has come on she's said she, she's uh, refrained from giving a recommendation from something she's watching and instead has promoted the Joker movie <laughs> and has said that she's very excited about the Joker movie should watch the Joker movie and I was I never really asked her why just she was just like everyone go see the Joker and I, I, I mean I've never really talked to you like about superhero movies before Lisa and so I'm curious what was it that really first piqued your interest about this movie uh was it that you're a big dc fan are you a big fan of the joker as a character are you a big joaquin phoenix fan did you just think this trailer looked awesome what was it that really like got you so excited about this movie in the first place and uh i know you're still kind of processing how you felt about it but can you uh, just at least first broadly share some general reactions to before i uh switch it over to nick Right. That's a good question. And I had to bring up the Joker only because Joshua kept promoting Gemini Man. So I wanted to promote a different film. <laughs> Wait, but. And, yeah. And hey, but before, before <laughs> Nick gets the wrong idea, she's, when she says Joshua, she's referring to another guy named Josh Brown who does my podcast yes. from time to time. I am not genuinely excited about Gemini Man, though I'm going to see it for the benefit <laughs> of this other friend. So. I, I thought you were just very excited to see Will Smith de-aged and fighting himself. Uh, n- no, but I, I will go see it out of professional obligation. <laughs> so, uh, Lisa, what, what, Joker, what, what's the deal? Why, why, are you, why are you so excited about this? Yes, I derailed. I mean, like, it's a culmination of things for me. Um, obviously, as a young, impressionable girl, seeing The Dark Knight in 2008 and seeing Heath Ledger's performance of it really changed my mind. I, I feel like I loved horror and the idea of it ever since I saw his portrayal. And then kind of the news about Joker broke after watching You Were Never Really There last year. You were never really here, yes. You were here, sorry about that. Um, and so that was something, after seeing Joaquin in that film and then hearing about the news, it was just like a perfect euphoria of like, this is going to be a great film, you know, like Joaquin can play a pent-up, frustrated guy, alone guy so well that this has to go swimmingly. And as a big fan of the Joker... It was just it just all came together that it was gonna be a perfect film. And I, I don't wanna use the word guilty pleasure because I hate that term, but I love the hangover movies and I loved Todd Phillips before he made the comments recently. So it just felt like everything was coming together for this film and I kinda missed seeing the Joker on screen after so many years. So, so did, that's why I was really so did it go, for it. So did it go swimmingly? <laughs> um unfortunately it didn't for me. Uh, but it's probably my fault because I hyped it up too much. Um and it has nothing to do with the controversy around the film or anything like that. The, the movie ended for me, and I was so confused. I'm like, did I like it, or did I just like Joaquin Phoenix's performance, you know? And the idea of seeing the Joker on screen again. So I'll go more into it later, but it didn't, it didn't live up to the hype that I built in my head, unfortunately. Yeah, Nick, what kind of taste did this movie leave in your mouth? Well, I was really hoping that um, Lissa was going to like it, and I'm still hoping <laughs> that you're going to like it, because I'm still trying to get somebody to convince me that I should see more in this movie than I did. Same here, yeah. Um, I I think the more I think about it, the more I kind of like am not um, <laughs> ambivalent about the film. I'm I, I think I actively dislike it. Mm. Um, you know, when I got home that night, I actually like 
I kept thinking about it, I kept thinking about it, but it wasn't, I wasn't coming to any good conclusions about it. So I actually just like started like typing notes for this podcast. So like <laughs> I, could, I could remember all the things that were bothering me about it. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of good. I'm, I'm not going to trash it across the board. Um, I love the music. I thought some of the shots and the cinematography were really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the portrayal is mostly everything it was cracked up to be. I, um, I would just say that the script is a total mess and I think that the film picks up things, shakes them up, and puts them back down without having really anything to say about them. Um, so it, it was a disappointment for me. And then just to add one other note, um, I thought that they completely whiffed on the characterization of the Joker. I oh, thought this, this was an effective characterization of Arthur Flack, and I thought this was an effective vehicle for Joaquin Phoenix. But when it comes to... You know, there's only so many opportunities to get these characters on film, and I thought that this was uh, the second really missed opportunity following up on Jared Leto, unfortunately. And the fact that I'm I'm invoking Leto in this podcast <laughs> probably will let you know where I didn't want to go with this, but but where we've already gotten to. Yeah, I want, no. I, yeah, I want to get more into that whole overall characterization of the Joker. First of all. I'm not going to make you feel any better about this movie, but I. I, I <laughs> All right, so, I, so we've got three negatives here, maybe. Right, but like I, I know. Yeah, I know, and I and I asked you like about why it left that taste in your mouth because like I just I left the movie feeling bad, and yeah. I, you know, I don't really think that there's anything wrong with going to see a movie where sad things happen or that doesn't leave you feeling in a good mood, and sure, but I, but I like what you said about it not really having a message because I feel like if you're going to go see a movie that makes you feel bad and I left this, the first thing I said to my friend Monique, as we left the movie, I was like, man, I just don't feel good about that. And <laughs> not, not even like a, a rating it as a movie, but just how it made me feel. And if you're going to go sit somewhere for two hours and have an experience that leaves you feeling not good, you should get something else out of it. And I, I some people might say, Oh, not all movies have to have a message. Sure. But like, I feel like it should have some message you can take from it. If you're going to feel bad just to make it a worthwhile experience. And right. I, I, and you know, and especially superhero movies, they don't have to have a message, but like, I think I clearly think that, you know, Lissa mentioned just how meaningful, uh, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker was, but I mean, mm-hmm. part of what made that character so unique was he just parachutes into that movie as the, and not being originally using this term, but as the agent of chaos that everyone describes him as, and you don't know anything about him. You just know that he likes chaos, which is cool. It doesn't have to have a larger message than that, but this movie clearly tries to show you a lot about this guy's life and give it some other meaning. And I, I don't really think it's successful in that way. Uh, so what, do, what did you think about what this tried to say about Arthur Fleck versus the Joker? Did you think it kind of conveyed any kind of message about why this guy is who he is that you thought was meaningful? Well, that's currently my inner turmoil right now is going back and forth about the plot and if it needed to be deeper, if the message needed to be clearer, because a lot of people that I've talked with, we've kind of discussed how the film felt surface level, but that for a lot of us, we feel like the Joker is surface level. It's not meant to be too deep because I know like in the comics, like he falls into a vat of like toxic waste and that's how it becomes a Joker. So it's like the, the, the good part of the film for me was that like, this felt really real in terms of like someone else could be the Joker. And I know that's a controversy around it. Um, but, uh, kind of going off that, I think I, I liked the surface level plot right now. I think because like the focus on, I think the focus of the film more so was like Joaquin's performance and, um, the, the, the kind of deep dive into his character. I, I kind of actually like that part. So I'll go, I'll go with that. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess they're they're trying to get out who this guy is by, you know, right. maybe attempting to say a lot of different things. You know, Nick, you said they threw a bunch of different balls up in the air, and I, I, I would agree with that. I guess in, in some ways maybe it tries to be a movie about uh, economic – the various economic classes and uh, pushing back against power or uh, mental illness or uh, I don't know, any number of things. Like what, what was there one where you saw like, oh, wow, like – that was a really big missed opportunity. Um, I don't know about missed opportunity so much as like, I'll, I'll just start naming sort of like topics that come up in this film without really any sort of sure. um, regard or point of view. Um, populism, economic inequality, mental illness, um, gun fetish, fetishization, whatever you would call that word, um, in seldom, all these things, except it doesn't really have a point of view on any of them. It's sort of like picking up a can of soda, shaking it, putting it back down and walking away. <laughs> it's sort of, I think the movie is maybe like thinking 
it's smarter than it is or more taboo than it is strictly like by picking up these problematic subjects and throwing them into the film without having a point of view or anything to necessarily say about them. And I guess what I would argue at the end, particularly when it comes to sort of like economic inequality and populism, is that if the film has a point of view, um, it's, a, it's a deeply negative one um, and, and probably a problematic one when it comes to the idea of like, should we redistribute wealth? Should we treat people equally? Well, when you have a city in flames and people rioting in the street and claiming kill the rich, I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's one point of view that maybe Todd Phillips takes. I, I don't know where that comes from, but um, it's it's one point of view. And it's it's one of the few actual points of view that the movie puts forward at all. Yeah, I, I, I know both of you. This sort of like overwhelming feeling of everyone in Gotham thinks we should kill the rich. And it's like, oh, OK, that's an interesting choice. Right. <laughs> and, and I guess we'll get into like how much of this movie actually happened, because that's like a very like important another issue. That's a very important <laughs> thing to discuss. And I guess there's nothing wrong with like making of the audience question whether or not something happened. But at the same time, uh, Lisa, did you end up watching King of Comedy? I did. Yeah, I watched it last night. And, I really liked it. Uh, yeah, I think I think we all did. And I, I don't know if you've seen Taxi Driver or, or not. Uh, I haven't. No, that's okay. But like, I mean, there obviously those are two that have like come up a lot. And like, you you seen you were never really here, which you probably seen more than I have because I saw it. But I saw it with like a pounding headache, and it was just oh, a terrible no. experience. And it's not a good movie to see with a pounding headache. And I just told myself I'd go back to it, but it's also hard to get yourself amped up to go into a movie that dark. And I just like, I haven't done it. So you can probably speak to that movie better than I can. Yeah. And, like, thing is, like that movie and Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, I would say they all have like very clear points of view. And, like, especially, like, with Taxi Driver, like, you know that's about how Travis Bickle sees the world. And that is clearly what it's about. And in Joker, like, we don't even really know if he's interacting with the world. And even when, like, we are following him around in the world, it's not really clear, like, how Arthur feels about anything. And I think that's maybe, like, a a bigger problem. And I think, you know, maybe uh, King and Copy maybe isn't trying to do as many things at once. So maybe that message and point of view just comes through clear. But, like... I, I, I get that it's a Joaquin Phoenix is a very talented actor and I do think I overall like the performance but I, I, I agree with what Nick's saying like I don't really know if I think he has this movie really like has a strong take on just how he feels about everything and then all of a sudden he becomes the Joker and I think that goes to what Nick was saying about his characterization of the Joker it's like yeah I, I, I kind of see how he slips into that character really quickly at the end but the problem is maybe that just happens a little too quickly Right. No, I can see that. I guess maybe I hate the term to play devil's advocate. Maybe Ooh, go for it. Todd Phillips. In maybe maybe you'll convince us this movie is good even when you didn't say I it know. was good. Maybe I'll convince myself. Who knows? Um, I mean, I guess maybe to play devil's advocate, you could kind of argue that, um, like Nick mentioned, all those all those themes and kind of messages that we're trying to come across. Maybe Todd Phillips wanted the Joker to be a culmination of all of those things and. Uh, kind of explore that maybe in another film, maybe because the film just felt am- like ambiguous, and I guess the ending kind of goes off of that too. So I'm hoping all of those messages are trying to come across to be like a culmination of the Joker and like who he represents. But then that that'd be a lot to unpack there as well too. So I don't know. I was just thinking about that when Nick mentioned all those. Well, I, I, I joked with I, I joked with both of you that I was like excited to have Lissa on because if this movie was going to be a celebration of incel culture, it shouldn't be just two dudes talking about it. Was, right. Was, 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 was that something you were concerned about going into this movie, that it was going to be a celebration of that uh, very uh, detestable type of male? And did you think the movie actually avoided those pitfalls? Because I, I actually would say that I didn't really have any kind of problem with that because, I mean, the one storyline, it actually significant storyline involving a female character, I just don't really think it actually treads on that kind of territory. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me as your token, <laughs> fema- token yes. female guest. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't have a problem with that in that sense. I guess I... Again, like the, I've never seen a film have such mixed reviews and like controversy, and I don't think the controversy was that necessary. I think it was definitely over over exaggerated. The only thing I will comment on, kind of talking about uh, the love interest and everything like that, like I feel like Zazie Beetz's character and Brian Tyree Henry's character were kind of like underused, and also the um, the character that's the Joker's friend, the uh, the dwarf was, I feel like all three of them kind of went into a pile of like props, which I didn't really appreciate because they all three are very talented actors and it feels like their characters weren't really used. That's the only thing I will comment on when it comes to uh, 
the like the love interest and everything in the film. Fair enough. If that I, makes sense. I, I would say it's a total waste to have Brian Tyler yeah. Henry in your movie and only have him for one scene. Except as that's like ex- clerk one. Ex- well, except that's exactly what a Beale Street could talk could do last year, and it was like one of the most incredible scenes of the year in movies. So uh, right. I, I just say, yeah, maybe just as like a file clerk. Uh, maybe maybe there was something left on the cutting room floor. I don't know, but or maybe he just yeah. really wanted to be in that movie, and that was the only part they had. But yeah, he is like a g- actor whose talents are far greater than what was able to be shown uh, in this movie. Uh, Nick, I guess what I'll ask you then is, because you did do a good job of just kind of rattling off a lot of the things that the movie tried to do. You said you're not going to kind of criticize it across the board. Were, were there some areas where you, I, and I, I don't want to just be wholly negative, was there, were there any areas where you did think, oh, well, maybe he was halfway successful here? Um, I've been describing the film as like sort of provocative for the, for the sake of provocation. So maybe this is a backhanded compliment, but I certainly felt things. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, like squirming around at times, especially when he uh, when he kills Randall, a.k.a. the Yellow King. And, and you know, the tension at the end between him and Robert De Niro um, is palpable. Yeah. And, you know, the movie does make you feel things and the way he films it is powerful. And I thought the score was um, was equally so. So th- there are things that work. Um, part of what I liked about it, <laughs> it held my attention. Um <laughs> Well, I mean, as, as someone that uh, d- has a long relationship with various different pieces of uh, Batman canon, I mean, did you think that it? Uh, <laughs> did you did, did you think it was kind of had too many kind of callbacks or tie-ins to that kind of stuff, and it could have even more been its own thing, or did you think, hey, maybe some of that kind of stuff was what kind of helped keep you drawn in? No, um, and here's here's where I would go with this. I'm just going to quote Todd Phillips directly, and I feel like this will sum up a okay. lot of where I want to go with this. Yes. Um, this is a direct quote from, from Todd Phillips speaking with the rap. I literally described a Joaquin Phoenix at one point in, the, in those three months, I guess some period of time, as like, look, this is a way to sneak a real movie in the studio system under the guise of a comic book film. Let's make a real movie with a real budget and we'll call it Expletive Joker. And that's what it was. That's a quote from the film's director. So um, if, there's a, if you watch this movie thinking... This feels like somebody wanted to make a movie and just stole and exploited some IP to get their movie made. Well, the director is telling you that that's what happened. So it's perhaps not coincidental that, you know, we spend a lot of time with Joaquin Phoenix alone. He morphs into the character that we think we know at the end of this film. But, you know, I think Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips would have been just as happy if we just called this movie Arthur, assuming they could get a greenlit. Yeah. And it's a good point. That'll start, you know, sort of every problem I have with the characterization here. Well, okay, yeah, uh, I want to ask you more you specifically about earlier, that then. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You brought it up earlier, and, and you and I have talked about Taxi Driver just a little bit. Um, Travis Bickle, I think, multiple times in that film sort of points out how he doesn't really believe in anything necessarily. Like, he has no particular morals or convictions or stances. And um, Arthur Fleck echoes that in this film at least once, where he says, oh, I, don't, I don't really believe in anything or I believe in nothing. Um, and I think there is a profound difference between not having any, having any convictions about anything or not having a particular worldview and actually being a nihilist. And I do think that like, that's a good point to start on for like where they failed with this character. Um, I do feel like the Joker in every other form of media and granted, it's not like you can't do anything new. I feel like he has a very defined worldview and he's just acting it out in the most extreme way possible. Whereas Joaquin Phoenix's character, you know, Arthur Fleck just seems like an aggrieved person who is taking out his frustration on the people who he feels like he's wronged. And so I think that's a, you know, kind of maybe that's a fascinating character study. And and Phoenix and Phillips certainly felt that way about it. I don't necessarily think that that's a faithful or quality adaptation of this character. So I think you can kind of draw a line there. Maybe the film succeeds in being what it wants to be, but I ultimately think it fails in being sort of like a quality or truthful adaptation of this particular character. Does that make sense? I think a lot of that makes sense. And I, I if, if I'm understanding you correctly, though, I guess you're saying that like uh, Taxi Driver is successful and that it's very clear in what Travis's not beliefs, but lack of beliefs are. And maybe uh, this is this point that I was going to try and make about Joker, but like it kind of just like are you saying it just kind of drowns itself in its own nihilism and that's the problem? Because that, like a, 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 that was like a turn of phrase I was going to use myself. Yes, and, and I also think that there's a, a sharp contrast to be drawn between not having any particular convictions about anything and actually having a nihilist outlook. 
And I, I don't think Arthur is smart enough, smart enough, maybe not the right word, but like he doesn't seem informed enough or with it enough to have that kind of worldview. He just seems, and, and the character says this out loud in a clear callback to Traxi, uh, Taxi Driver, that he doesn't believe in anything. Right, and I, and I can... And that's clear. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you guys about because like you're talking about his characterization and he spends so much of the first half of this movie, it just feels like watching him... Just watching him, like watching. There's him some wasted movie. time there, right? Well, Especially I, I, what Lissa just talked about about all the people who are in this film that we don't get right. any time with. Right. It's mm-hmm. like why? Why can't we see him like actually interacting with more of them? Like the scenes, I guess, where he talks to the detectives. I guess, and those are two very good actors playing both those detectives in mm-hmm. um, Shay Wiggum and um, shoot. Now I'm drawing a blank on who the other one is, but um, uh, but I mean, they're they're both good actors, and it's like okay, Bill well, Camp, by the way. Bill, yeah, Bill. How can I forget Bill Camp? Bill Camp's great in like everything. He makes <laughs> everything more interesting. It's like, uh, yeah. It's it's cool watching him have to interact with them, but it's like, uh, how can how can he like ha- like at least Travis Bickle's like out there like driving a taxi around and like having to interact with people, whereas like Arthur Fleck is like dancing in his bathroom and I was gonna like, say just dancing and, and, and like and like star- <laughs> starving himself to the point where he like looks more like a werewolf than a human, and it's like how are you like having enough interaction with the outside world for us to like actually buy that you sincerely believe all these things, and like I and I, I guess that's kind of part of the problem because I, I I do think in some ways the movie kind of clicks into place and is like oh. Wow, like I would have liked to have seen him play this version of the Joker when he like goes full Joker for lack of a better term at the end, but I don't think like we see enough to like to like inform that character change to like make it believable. I mean, Lisa, did you have any other thoughts just on like I know. How, how it got that character to that place? <laughs> I mean, I'm still processing. At the same time, like I feel like his backstory feels like easy. And now that I watched King of Comedy and I've been hearing things about taxi driver i still need to watch it i'm a bad film girl but um i i'm just hearing all that like the back the backstory felt kind of easy but i also hate using that terminology and you're right like i wanted to see him interact with um more people you know and the, and the one interaction we had was imaginary so you know you have one twist and you call it you know shocking but it just feel like i, I wanted more interactions between people that he maybe didn't know or whatnot, because we only saw between his mother and his coworkers and his fake love interest that wasn't even real. So right, and I don't think we need this movie. It. Yeah, and I don't think we need this movie necessarily over-explained to us. I think it's maybe right. a good thing we don't get every little thing totally spelled out. That there is a lot of exposition talking about uh, him growing up, and we're kind of seeing like his mom confronted with with her past. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I yeah, Nick made the point about like, economic inequality, and like yeah. I mean, yeah, that maybe it's not the most original backstory to have someone that was abused and came from a poor background and then not be, like, a, a well-adjusted adult. Sure. But at the same time, like, it, uh, I, I guess it makes, I, I, I mean, it makes sense. But also, if you look at, like, King of Comedy, it's, like, we constantly see, like, Rupert Pupkin, like, having all these really uncomfortable but, like, uh, very, very, like, seemingly, like, on it, I don't want to say honest, uh, realistic interactions with people where it's, like, you could see a guy forming a worldview based on, like, uh, just that he's this kind of, he's this specific kind of white male and he thinks everyone should uh, kind of... Uh, kowtow to his interests and things go poorly when that doesn't happen like i kind of get that but like it's hard to see where arthur gets to exactly where he gets to just because uh we only see like what we see like one stand-up set and see him kind of practicing his stand-up and we see him getting bullied when he's doing the clown thing but i i I don't know i I, I don't think that's enough nick Uh, enough to justify his actions yeah is that what you mean yeah yeah. no of course not and that's that's the problem with um any origin story for the joker there is never any justification for what this guy becomes right Mm -hmm. everything fails so the more you know about whoever he really is as a person or whoever he really was really just demystifies the character and i thought that chris nolan not to be a a nolan fanboy or anything like that i thought that chris (laughs) nolan really understood that about the character that's part of what made him special is that you don't know where he came from and you don't really know anything about him. He's just, he's almost an idea. And that's, that's kind of why back to what I was saying earlier, that there's a difference between having an idea about how you see the world and not believing in anything. Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you guys, not to, to hijack the conversation here, no, uh, this, you, you've said you've seen King of comedy, Josh, you've seen King of comedy and taxi driver. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering where the line is between paying homage to something or being influenced by something and merely being sort of like derivative and beholden to it. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too. Watching it last night, I was like, wow, I don't know if it's inspired or kind of directly taking some things like it feels like a love letter, but 
like copying and pasting the love letter. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I like homages. You know, I was just um, when I was doing my podcast on Hustlers a couple weeks ago. Uh, Nick, I don't know if you saw Hustlers. I know Alyssa did. I, I haven't gotten the opportunity. But but there's like a very clear moment in there where uh, basically like a, a character like goes outside and the music stops and then goes back in and the music keeps playing basically. And it was like a it was like a clear homage to Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. Because I, then I heard her on a pod, the director on a podcast, and I found out she's a big Tarantino fan. It's like, okay, cool. That's it's not like calling too much attention to it. And I guess I, I don't want to say you, that's the only way to pay homage to something because you know, I mean, I guess there's probably different versions of the Joker's origin story. You know, this one doesn't touch the whole vat of chemicals thing. Like, there's different ways to tell that tell that story, I suppose. So that's fine. And like, if a, a version of that deals with him as a stand up comic and yeah, that's fine if it's going to kind of obviously have some similarities to King of Comedy. And it's very clear that, like, Todd Phillips has watched King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, like, several times over. And I think I haven't – I honestly haven't read a ton of his interviews because I feel like I'm just going to be happier for it. Uh, but I, 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 I don't think he's been too shy about that. And that's fine, I think. But I guess it goes back to what I was saying earlier where it's like, you know – if you're going to just tell this kind of movie, and I guess there's not a pleasant way to tell the origin story of someone who turns into this kind of person, like you're saying, Nick, and it's just hard to justify someone becoming this person, but I, I need the movie to kind of like have some more value on its own or have something for me to hold on to that just kind of justifies its existence if it's just going to make me feel bad. And I don't think a Joaquin Phoenix performance is enough, and I think it just needs to have some mm-hmm. other unique elements. If it's going to ape Taxi Driver in King of Comedy in so many ways, that's fine. I don't mind homages. I just, if that's going to be the case, I need it to have other reasons to stand on, on its own besides having one really good central performance and then paying homage to these other movies that, yeah, like are similar and also have a great Robert De Niro performance when they also cast Robert De Niro in this movie. Like, it's, it's begging you to just, to like, really, really think about this other movie. And I'm like, that's fine, but I just, I, I needed to have more content in it that uh, makes it stand apart. And I think this performance, while, yeah, it has similarities to Rupert Pupkin and Travis Bickle, I think it's a unique enough performance, and Joaquin Phoenix is a unique enough performer that I'm fine with that if you just have him, like, interacting with other people in his world. I think that gives you something a little more to hold on to that's just more compelling than watching him uh, be a disturbed person on his own. And I, I, I don't know if I, that, that's, that might be a long non-answer to your question, but I would say, yeah, there's a clear, there's a clear difference maybe between paying an homage and just straight up aping something. But I think it can, it can turn more into the latter than the former if it just, uh, has some other distinctive qualities to it. And I don't know if the Joker really did. Um, uh, and I want to go back to, I, I guess maybe we, we skip this forward to whether any of this movie happened, because I think that oh, that's yes, relevant. It's very important. I yeah. think that's relevant to whether it's actually saying anything or not. Because if this movie maybe didn't happen, right, or if mm-hmm. the film was all in his head, then maybe, you know, you could certainly interpret it differently. I've seen a couple. I've seen, okay, I've seen a couple different interpretations of this. I don't know if you like one yeah. version of it the best. I've heard that one that being that the whole thing actually he's in this insane asylum the whole time. I've heard that one. I've heard mm-hmm. that everything after he locks himself in the fridge that's just a hallucination. Meaning, like once he uh, once he goes out and he um, has the. Uh, chase on the subway platform, the in the the dance on the stairs, the appearance on the show, the murder, the uh, the riots, which I guess maybe happened to some extent. If we're gonna see Martha and Bruce Wayne die for the thousandth time, like that obviously is a thing that happens. So I, I couldn't believe we had to do that again. Well, we had I to. Know. Do, we had to do that. So uh, um, we had to. And, do that. And, and, I mean, we did, well, it's funny that you made the comment about like Todd Phillips saying, "Oh no, we can sneak this movie, a real movie, into like some other IP." It's like, wow, but you're really, really trying to stay close to some of this IP, aren't you? Yeah. But, uh, uh, so, I mean, th- there's a couple versions of that where it's just like uh, all of it didn't happen, some of it didn't happen, or, you know, maybe it's just like the thing about the girl is the hallucination and that's it. Did you come down on any of that, Nick? Or did you come down on any one of those scenarios being what you think might be the most accurate depiction of what really happened? I came down on none of them for the following reason. It okay. is very clear that the film doesn't actually have any idea what the fuck happened. <laughs> yeah, I think they were just waiting to see how the film goes and debating if they can have a pre- or sequel, so they're waiting to see what the end actually happened huh. that felt like a tease um and i've been yeah. thinking about like the end of inception and like why i don't mind what they did at the end of inception and why i was so frustrated by what they did at the end of joker um and i think it's because at least at the end of inception you feel bad for leo right yeah um, because something happened to the character 
Whereas at the end of Joker, it's clear that maybe nothing happened to anybody and the film is deliberately baiting you. It was like a twist for the sake of a twist. And I think if you're honest with Todd Phillips, even though he'll tell you that the movie's supposed to be a mirror of the audience and you're supposed to believe whatever you want to believe about it, I think it's fairly clear that this is a film that was designed to provoke you strictly for the sake of provocation. I don't yeah. think there's I don't think there's an answer to to where the turnoff point for Arthur's hallucination was. I think it's there to bait you. Do you think there's anything and, ro- Do you think there's anything inherently wrong with that? Like, I mean, I, I don't want to get just baiting too, the audience too deep into that. Like, is there anything wrong if that's the movie he wanted to make? I mean, I mean, we're we're allowed to say it's a bad movie, then you know. I guess does that make yeah. it a bad movie? Or, I, I I I don't know, but it's like. I, I can't get. I, I think it's kind of weird to like make a movie for that purpose without a little more direction. But like, I mean, does does that necessarily make it a bad movie, or is it just that it was just executed poorly? I think you could. I think you could argue it was executed poorly. I think it's submarines itself because I think you might have had a more interesting movie if the if the if the end of that film is him being celebrated in the streets and the city burning. I think that that there's a different interpretation of that movie, right. whether it's a good one or not, or whether it's something that makes you uncomfortable or not is irrelevant. I think that at least that point that maybe maybe this movie would have a worldview or that you could interpret it in a particular way. But I think anything you might feel about this movie or might interpret from it gets submarined by that scene at the end in the asylum. I think it's, oh. it's sort of a movie who like goes up to the brink of having an idea even if it's an uncomfortable one or an upsetting one, and backs away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the frustrating part to me. And so, I was annoyed that the love story was was made up too. If we then again at the end had to turn our brains on and be like, okay, was this real or was this not? Like, why are we having... Yeah, that's weird. It was like, it, well, as that was happening, again, my friend Monique, who saw it with me and I, we just kept looking at each other every time Zazie Beat shows up, and we're like... Yeah. Like, Wait, like, we've like... Why is she into this guy when he just admitted he stalked her? Like, why, 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 why are they in a relationship? Like, and I, I was mad at myself. It was like I should have figured that out. Like, but sooner, that, like, it. like that, like it was, it was in his head because it was like it was making no sense to me. But at the same time, like they kept that going for like a very long stretch of the movie, and like it was almost distracting. Like, it's like it makes more sense that he imagined it, but like I think it might have distracted me from other parts of the movie because I kept like thinking about that in my head. I was like, well, this isn't really a celebration of incel culture so much as like. Uh, maybe every insult's like fantasy yeah. to like just have some woman like beautiful woman be really into him despite the fact that he's like totally weird and awkward looking you know like, I was like honestly huh. and the film could have 100% worked without that whole subplot 100% like we didn't I don't think we even needed that, that part of part of the film I mean in my opinion at least I mean yeah I don't I, know I, if you I, guys I, would no I mean I, I think it I don't think it really makes it substantially better or worse if you just cut it out for sure right because they just 20 minutes probably no I, no I agree and it's, it's a shame because I, I, I really like Zazzy Beats I, and I, I mean, same here it, it just made a very weird use of this cast like we haven't even talked about all of them but it's like you you make a movie about like a, a like a an, a self-loathing aspiring comedian and give Mark Maron like three lines like what is that <gasps> you know? I was so mad he was in there for two seconds why are you gonna hype up Mark Marin and not have him for more than five minutes. Oh. I was very excited from the from the time I heard he was cast. I've been I listening to, to Marin's podcast off and on for a long time now, and I'm like, oh, you know, I, I just wanted to see what would happen, and I actually right. forgot he was in the film until he showed yeah. up. Yeah, do, do you do you guys watch Glow? Yeah, uh, I saw season one. Okay, behind. he's like very good in that show, and like he did a lot of other acting leading up into getting cast on that show, and like various parts. Like he legit like put in the work and like smaller roles before he even got like a role as big as the one on Glow. It's like he's like I think actually become like a progressively better actor. So I was like very curious to see him get some kind of like really cool spotlight. And it's I, I mean I don't know. It just feels like the movie could have like you know really like reprioritized just its entire story and the way it told it and i think yeah. we're i think we're all in agreement that maybe just the first act of this movie just like i don't know really wasn't as compelling in a lot of the things it tried to do and if you just like maybe plop him more into this world and now i feel like i'm like arguing for a version that's even more similar to king of comedy which again i'm not i i i, I don't really know if i have a good answer as to like what the proper amount of homage is again but like there are just a lot of really good actors that like we see like i i agree with nick like that that scene where like with him and uh and murray is like really good and i like it's really cool to see like robert Niro like turn it on in that way like he's done other movies like in the last like handful of years but like basically since like the 
early 90s, like, hasn't had a single, like, Academy Award-nominated performance other than, you know, Silver Linings Playbook, which is, like, fine, but, like, he's, like, a crotchety old man in that movie. And, you know, he... It's, like, really cool to see him, like, actually go toe-to-toe with someone like Joaquin Phoenix and, like, hold the screen like that and be, like, super compelling and uh, have to interact with this, like, bizarre character and in... it hits so many notes in the way he does where he's like, you know, he's kind of joking about him, but then all of a sudden, like, the tone have to, has to switch really fast. And, like, I was really impressed with that. It's like, maybe just having to see Arthur navigate this world a little longer and, uh, you know, have some unfortunate interactions with some people, maybe that gets him to the place where he ultimately gets in a way that's more convincing to us. I, I wouldn't like it on the basis that I just don't believe that the character needs an origin, um, so much so that I, I felt like I never stopped seeing Arthur in the film. Well, well, that, even, well, well okay, let me cut you off there then, because the, the, that yeah. was the other question I was going to ask you guys. If you don't know if he needs an origin, that's fine. But, like, I know you said you went back and forth on whether or not you, like, had high expectations for this movie. So what is a good version of this movie look like to you then if it doesn't involve an origin story? <laughs> I don't know that I would have made it, and, oh, and maybe okay. I'm the, maybe I'm the wrong guest to have. Well, well no, no, there's nothing wrong with that if that's your position. But like at one point, you said you were excited for this movie. Like, yes. what, 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 what was your expectation at that point? So, uh, or did you only Joker... decide, or did you only decide it didn't need to be an origin story after seeing this movie? No, no, a Joker, a Joker film set in the '80s. Um, okay, you that's know, cool. uniquely, right? Uniquely appeals to me. Or I, I guess it's supposed to be the late '70s. I don't know what it's supposed it's to be. It's late '70s or early '80s. It's one of the two. Yeah. It was originally pitched there. Um, so, look, I listened to too much 70s and 80s music, and I watched too much Batman content. So, you know, thumbs up <laughs> on both of those things. Um, I've, I've always felt like I actually, as, as far as an origin goes, um, a, The Killing Joke is probably um, one, of the, one of the most famous Batman comic books. And it tells more or less this particular kind of iteration of the Joker's origin story where he's a failed comedian. Now there is a bad of chemicals in there and he's a pregnant wife and some other stuff, but, but really it's, it's telling you and, and actually Joaquin Phoenix's character, you know, Arthur repeats one of the lines from the killing joke when he's sitting in Zazie Beat's apartments. And he said, I, I had a really bad day. The, the famous line from Killing Joke is, you know, all it takes is one bad day. And it's what he's telling Batman, basically, like, mm. you could become me if you just have one bad day um, or anybody could. And so I never liked that comic book because I always hated the story of this failed comedian becoming the Joker. But even at the end of that book, and this was heavily drawn on in The Dark Knight, there's the idea that the Joker's lying to you, that this is not how he became the Joker, that he's just he just made it all up. And that's more compelling to me because if you have to sit there and watch how somebody became a homicidal maniac who commits all version of atrocities dressed as a clown, there's no justification for any of that. You're better off not knowing a thing about the guy. Right, but I think this movie obviously makes it clear that that's that's not what this story is because we we haven't no. even really we, we haven't we haven't really <laughs> ta- we haven't we haven't talked really even actually talked about the Bruce Wayne stuff in the um or the um the killings. Or, or, or yeah, and the, or the Thomas Wayne stuff, I, I should say too, and how you know, I mean, there's this whole origin as to like where he even came from, and the, I think I think we're led to believe that like his mom was like crazy too, even though it's not his biological mom, and that she uh, imagined this whole entire affair she had with Thomas Wayne or, or something like that to that but extent. Did she? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know, but like, I mean, regardless, like some version of that story. Uh, is kind of where this guy came from and he it does seem like it's he did have some kind of abusive past so uh i i like the idea of him making this whole thing up just to justify his crazy actions like nick said but I, that's not what that's not the story this movie's trying to tell it's it's it just yeah. not so i mean did you have unless any he is unless he's a mental patient at the uh, end of the film okay, right. and he's just fantasizing the whole thing okay it's the okay. whole film a revenge fantasy so there is that possibility too so i'm, I'm taking nick that you just you, you really weren't here for all the uh seven-year-old uh bruce wayne and the thomas wayne stuff i'm still trying to figure out what the cut at the end of the film is supposed to mean when he's in yeah, the why asylum did they reshow it? and they cut back to bruce with a dead thomas and martha in the alley and, you know, the, the therapist or, you know, whoever he's talking to asks him, you know, what's going on? And he says, you know, oh, oh you wouldn't get it. It's, you know, it's a joke and you wouldn't get it. 
I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Well, okay, here's what everyone I've heard talk about that thinks it's supposed to mean. Everyone seems to, this is given, especially given the movie's success, it makes sense that people would take it here, but they're like, oh, this means there's going to be a sequel or Bruce is going to come yeah. after. And I, my, my question for you then, Nick, is saying is that you like kind of just like the idea of a Joker movie set in the 80s. Are you then here for a movie that is a sequel to this one, which you didn't particularly like? Set during the Clinton administration. I guess that's um. the thing. If you're going to make, if you're, if you're going to make, if you're going to make Bruce this young, that's like when he'd be old enough to be Batman. So I guess it wouldn't be an 80s movie anymore at that point if we're setting it in the mid-90s. So then are you here for a mid-90s uh, Batman-Joker face-off where the movie's told from the perspective of the Joker? I don't think that movie's getting made. I don't, I don't mean to... to yeah, but, like, to you, really, you really don't think they're going to try and do some kind of sequel to this with how much well, money it's going to make? You're not wrong about that. Um, I'm I've actually seen some Walking Phoenix quotes too where he's like, oh my God, I wish I could have filmed with Todd forever. Like, it seems like they really enjoyed working together too. So if you have the two principles um, as a yes, then maybe it would happen. The director, the actor, and the studio have sworn up and down for two years that this is a standalone film that is not getting a sequel and it's not tying in anything else. That is so, true. That is true. So while it probably would make more money and we'd sit here and talk about it again, um, that would just mean that they've been lying on purpose for two years, which, after you watch this film, is certainly possible. Lisa, do you want, a, when, Lisa, do you want a sequel? I actually kind of do. Or when money's involved and you see how much money something makes, you know, the the promises change in an instance, I feel like, in the industry, because it's all about, I don't know. Well, that's the thing. When I'm curious, like, when they set out to make this movie, like, they knew they were making a very different kind of movie, and I'm sure they wanted it to be successful. But I wonder if they had imagined that it was going to, like, be this successful because it's not like a regular superhero movie it's not a it's not a fun sit for the most part you know and yeah so i don't know if they expected it to even make this much money when they kept saying that but they might have thought they were making some kind of art film just for themselves i mean yeah it was gonna make more money than your average little independent film or whatever but i mean maybe they maybe this is just exceeding their expectations i don't know I'm not sure either. And I, I mean, certainly, um, you know, Matt Reeves, Batman film is never going to get involved with this or at least again, unless everyone's lying. Yeah. Do you have, um, a lot of, do, you have do you have much clarity on that? I was going to ask you about that. Like, I know you're excited for that, but like, do you have much clarity on like, I guess is which one of these is like going to be, if, if one of the two is more tied in, I guess the Matt Reeves one's going to be more tied into the rest of DC universe. At some no, point. Uh, or they're uh, all, are they're all uh, their own thing. Allegedly, they're all their own thing that, that you know, part of part of the deal with Reeves or, or the project was that he was going to get kind of freedom to make what he wanted. And and, you know, the pitch from from Todd Phillips perspective with the Warner Brothers was, look, this isn't going to interfere with anything else you're doing. This is just one movie that we're making on our own. And we're going to go off and it's not going to relate to anything else. And that's probably so, pretty smart on the part of the filmmakers. change, but that, yeah. that was at least the original pitch. And that's probably pretty smart on the part of the filmmakers, given like just how much of a shit show they're like the DC extended universes. Like that's probably like uh, smart on them to secure that promise from yeah, like just the whoever they had the Warners or. DC and sell whoever they they'll license the right to like get the rights from like probably a good call on their part. I was just kind of curious. It's like very weird. It's like, so you got these two Batman, but there's going to be another one that's involved in like the rest of the DC world. I mean, that is if they need to bring in a Batman for a theoretical Joker sequel, which as you just said, may or may not ever actually happen. I don't know. Um, They've sworn up and down. It won't, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. I I don't know. One other thing I want to ask you, uh, Nick, before we actually like kind of wrap things up and I ask you guys some larger uh, DC questions or in general, uh, I, I know you were not happy with the characterization of the Joker, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't hear really hear you. Like I heard Glissa give any thoughts. Like were, what, what did you have any thoughts separate as to like how Joaquin Phoenix pulled it off? Like do, everyone seems, he seems even from the people that didn't like this movie, it seems like he's gotten pretty, uh, he's kind of come out of this movie unscathed. Like people are like, yeah, but he's really good. Like, did you think he was able to like do his own thing that was good, independent of like how they characterize the Joker? I thought the the performance was good. I mean, he okay. clearly tears himself apart, and he's certainly very committed. And he lost sixty pounds or whatever it was. And Todd Phillips made sure that we saw his ribs nine <laughs> times and point, pointing I mean, and pointing just, pointing in nine different directions. Right. He certainly committed himself to the part, and you know, I I was invested in watching him the whole way. I do feel like. Um, He's good enough, and Phillips was a little too obsessed about it. And so it, it, that goes back to what we talked about earlier about how um, Phoenix's portrayal or his performance is so good that it actually works to the detriment of the film because the director loses interest in any other character. And maybe that was by design, but yeah, Joaquin Phoenix is really good for two hours and 20 minutes. Um, 
but what's the new? Of literally <laughs> everything else. I definitely knew he was a good actor. I'd actually, yeah. I, I'd actually agree with that, and that's like a really good way to put it. Given that I just complained a lot about how all these other people didn't have enough to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like the gaze is on him a little too much. And and the other thing, just about how he did, uh, was that I never stopped seeing his character. I never stopped seeing Arthur, and maybe that's a compliment to the job he did. And maybe that's also just maybe a, a little bit of the failure of the writing. But even when he's with Robert De Niro at the end, I never felt like he really embraced the character, or really became the Joker. I just feel like he was Arthur Fleck in face paint. Um, and so I never stopped seeing Arthur at any point. And I felt like the grievances that Arthur aired with De Niro were, were grievances that Arthur Fleck had with the world. And... It, it was always it was a film about Arthur that could have been called Arthur, and I feel like it was called Joker, and he was put in face paint because we needed to sell tickets. What do you guys think about the the whole? I mean, we, we touched on it as one thing, maybe that the movie didn't excel in as much as it could have, but like you know, it does have a, it does kind of keep revisiting. It does. I mean, I wouldn't say it just it throws it out there and completely abandons the idea of like. Uh, Arthur's mental illness. I mean, they show him. They show him with this social worker on multiple occasions, and they have the added thing of him having like the laugh disorder, which isn't. It's maybe more of a uh, regular kind of disability than a mental illness necessarily. But you know, that's something that he plays up a lot, which I guess also ties into his performance because they have the whole thing where it's you know he can he, he can't control his laugh. There are times where you really can't tell if he's laughing or he's crying. Alyssa, how do you think the movie treated that aspect of the character? The his laugh is the laugh, the mental illness, or just kind of how that affected his overall personality and the way he saw himself. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, to say that Joaquin isn't talented is obviously false. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the laugh he made it his own. You could tell he did his research in terms of Mark Hamill's laugh, which it kind of mimicked in a sense. Um, but you know, he brought his own flavor to it, if it makes sense. Um, I thought the laugh and tying that into, um, mental illness was like potentially toxic because, uh, I know we haven't mentioned it, but like during the movie, when he handed out the cards Mm -hmm. at first, um, he like never got it back from the lady on the bus. And then somehow the detectives had that card. So it was just like, they never kind of went into like why he has that. They just said he has it from the, from the get go. And I just thought that no further explanation is kind of confusing for me at least. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I don't know. I I just felt like we, there's a lot of content out there about mental illness and I I just don't know if the movie like really put in the work to like make it feel that unique. Like, yeah, if someone goes off, if if someone goes off his meds, things are going to be bad. If a city cuts funding and we don't like like fund medical care for people, like that's going to be a consequence. Be bad. It, it didn't feel like anything I didn't already know, and I guess that was something I I, I maybe just thought that it, if it wanted to have that within a superhero movie, like that's cool. I just guess I wanted to see it done in a more interesting way. That's why I was curious to hear uh, your guys' thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, Josh, just one thing on that. Did you feel like that led anywhere? Um, because you know, it's it's clearly he's in pain when he's laughing at the beginning of the film, and it's sad. Right. But but it actually feels ham-fisted in a way because there's no follow-up on that. It feels like it's a part of the film for the first hour or so, but there's never really like a corner he turns where you can kind of tell, oh, he's laughing now because he's enjoying himself. It seems like this thing that we hold on to for the first hour of the film that actually just kind of falls off a bit. Well, I do think it's, I do think it's interesting that he seems pretty self-aware about his mental illness. I mean, he's obviously going to these meetings and having to talk about his meds and he's like writing in his uh, journal how it's like the thing about mental illness is, you know, people uh, expect you to act as if you don't have it. And right. which is which is certainly an interesting idea. But again, like I feel like we don't really get to see that idea through when he spends so little time actually having real interactions with other people. So I guess that's the, my, my biggest criticism and where it doesn't really uh, go anywhere with it. And I I don't know, Nick, I think I might have forgotten the second part of your question because I feel like I had something else to say. It, I, it just I, felt like the the like Tourette's sort of equivalent laughter that he was oh, experiencing. Oh, right, right. The last, first sorry. The film just sort of goes away or it doesn't really lead anywhere. Well, it's yeah. sort of, it's just sort of there to make you feel bad for him. And like, 
clearly this is a guy with a lot of issues, but I didn't feel like it tied into the end of the movie somehow or was like a consistent plot thread that you were supposed to get something out of. It was just sort of like yeah. an additional malady and it happens to be laughter because this guy happens to be the Joker. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess maybe the laugh itself, maybe no, not so much, but like I do think uh, part of the idea is that like I guess it's very disturbing that he seems to like more fully become himself only once he does like really – fucked up things uh mm-hmm. and oh, whether, yeah whether it be the triple homicide or like killing that co-worker oh that was the other thing i was gonna ask like i mean i don't know do you think he actually got the gun from the co-worker yeah did he is that supposed to be imagined too i don't know i mean <gasps> that, well that's the thing it's like he uh <laughs> i mean he the, the co-worker genuinely almost seems surprised when they confront him at work about it and he and, he, and then he points the finger at him so i was like maybe he procured that gun somewhere else and uh I, I don't know. That was that was that was a thought. But like when he kills that guy, and then he like is teasing the little person uh, coworker about it too, like about like he's gonna act like he's gonna go after him. It's not long after that where he just like he starts walking with a different level of confidence. So it's almost like the movie doesn't utilize the laugh in a way that necessarily connects to the character. And that's a very the, his laugh is obviously a very iconic thing. But I think it almost like uses his uh, his gait in his dance moves as more of a way to convey that he's now fully becoming the uh iconic evil character that is the title for this movie so i i I can kind of see where it's like the laugh thing could have been a thread that they pulled on in a more effective way and they didn't though they use other uh non-verbal cues to convey him going through the transformation which yeah again i think we all agree maybe he wasn't as earned as it could have been but though i kind of buy that performance and i think yeah i would be fine seeing him play the joker in like a another movie as a fully realized person when it's like not origin story which i think we're kind of in agreement on yeah um i also think that this movie actually kind of translates better or um is a little more satisfying if you think that he imagines the whole thing just because it gives you some perspective so like you know, if you notice, there's really no redeeming character in the film whatsoever. And, and maybe I'm uh, inadvertently missing somebody, but it seems like everyone is terrible. Like Thomas Wayne and the rich are terrible through the eyes of Arthur. But through the eyes of the audience, people who are, you know, rioting and killing people in the street aren't much better. Uh, that's why I thought it was like a, a really weird kind of commentary on social inequality. Because, you know, for, for a movie that basically suggests that like socioeconomic injustice is to blame for the rise of this maniac. Um, it also ends up painting a picture of like the rich and the poor as being equally depraved. Um, and like the oppressed in this case are like just as bad as their oppressors. So at least if you thought he was hallucinating all of this, you could be like, Oh, okay. Well, of course he's hallucinating at the end. This isn't uh, like an actual portrayal of society or depiction of society. He's just imagining all these people lifting him up. And then you can sort of like, retroactively justify everything about the film if you think he's daydreaming all of it because at least it gives you one perspective to go on but if the film's just going to kind of bail out at the end and be like maybe he made it up maybe he didn't then you're just sort of left with this mess that you don't know how to interpret uh lisa do you have a feeling on that do you do you you (laughs) like envisioning this as one long uh, uh hallucination or not um, I know now that Nick's explaining it that way, I'm like sitting here, like my mouth open, like trying to figure out <laughs> how I feel about it. But there's so many, there, there are so many ways to read this movie. Yeah. I think I, when I, when it, when the movie ended for me, I hoped and I thought it was real because I like the idea that he, I don't like the idea. I like the idea for the movie that he killed his doctor, whoever nurse in the asylum. And he ran to the left because he was escaping, you know? And then, and then in turn uh, ensues the chaos that is him in in Gotham City continuing, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, because what a waste of a movie if the whole movie is dreamt up. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to add to Nick, I know we were talking about the laugh too. Um, he made a really good point. I guess in my head, I... I, found, I, I thought that the laugh was necessary because, you know, in the flashback of Penny, she was like, oh, he was always such a happy boy. Like, I didn't even know he was in pain. It was because he was laughing the whole time. So I think the purpose of that was that we didn't know if he was laughing out of joy or pain. It was just continuous laughter, if that makes sense. So I kind of I kind of made up for it in that sense of that explanation why he laughed it, why he he was laughing and, and not so much in the second half, but um, to go back, yeah, I did I did 
I did hope that everything happened in the film because huh. it, it would have made more sense, at least for on my end. Yeah, I guess uh, my answer to your question too is that like I'm I don't know I, I feel like I don't I, I'm not sure if the movie. I guess it wasn't my read on it that the movie ultimately came down on the oppressed being just as depraved in a way or the people of a lower socioeconomic class being depraved. I just kind of thought maybe it was trying to have its cake and eat it too where it wanted to have like this epic riot scene uh, while also just like kind of taking the side of these people against the rich and it maybe just didn't pull it off as well as it thought it did was kind of my thought. Not necessarily that it was trying to make that statement, but I agree that like it, uh, it's at best muddled, right? Right, right. It doesn't, it doesn't succeed in that. But my thought was, it wasn't necessarily that like, Oh, because, because there, it might, if, if it's not a dream, that means that, uh, it came down here in my mind. It was just like, all right, they just didn't know where to make the right storytelling choice necessarily, or Mm -hmm. how to visually tell this a little differently so that we don't leave the movie thinking that about these people or thinking that they, the movie thinks that about these people, I guess, was my thought. But at this, but yeah, I guess they, 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 this is, they probably conceived of the ending before they conceived of the rest of the movie. So I don't know if they ever really <laughs> considered. I don't know if they really ever considered anything differently. Um, no, and I, I thought Lissa's point was really well taken about um, about the mother and how she perceived his laughter when he was in pain all of his life because that that really hadn't occurred to me until just now and that's right i forgot to mention that like she yeah and a little more devastating so that's that's well taken yeah and that probably really affected arthur's worldview too to have his mom constantly just telling him that um i want to i, I, I want to end on a slightly more positive note i'll, I'll ask you guys for some final <laughs> some some final thoughts on the movie but i want to look ahead to greener pastures and we already touched on the other batman movie in the works earlier nick and i think at the time that you lasted the podcast uh the robert pattinson news had just broken I, I at that time i encourage you to go watch good time i still do because you should definitely watch it before you see uncut gems which i think you might be aware of uncut gems now just because they're both uh safety brother products but uh just to talk about uh that now that the news isn't official yet but it seems like jonah hill is in negotiations to play a batman villain has that jeffrey uh, wright as well right has has jonah hill possibly being involved as any kind of villain uh upped your level of excitement at all for this matt reeves project is there a villain that you would most want him to portray because that was the that was the point of these stories was that like oh they're not sure which one he should do but he's going to do one of them uh where, where are you right now though on your excitement level meter for matt reeves batman Cautiously optimistic, if not outright optimistic, just in the sense that, um, you know, casting that seems a little odd when you first hear it, uh, for whatever reason, there seems to just like be a good track record with that. Where like clearly Reeves has a specific enough take on this character that he went and got Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. when he could have had, you know, think of all the people that were considered, whether it was Jake Gyllenhaal or Army Hammer or all the other people you, you heard about as a potential Batman, and he winds up with Robert Pattinson. So clearly right. he has something specific in mind and i would just go and immediately parlay that into whatever jonah hill's going to do clearly reeves has something very specific in mind because i don't think when a lot of people were fantasy casting you know uh particular villains for a reeves verse that they would have come up with jonah hill off the top of their head even though he's an exceptionally talented actor so uh, i just take it as sort of um sort of a good sign that that clearly Reeves has a direction that he wants to go in. And maybe maybe it's a little odd or maybe it's something that other people don't see. But, you know, nobody saw Heath Ledger in 2006. And look how that worked out. And everyone hated Michael Keaton in 1988. Look how that turned out. So it seems like for whatever reason with Batman, sometimes when you can't quite see what we're going for is, is the times when you're most pleasantly surprised. There you go. So something to look forward to a little more. I don't listen. Do you have any? Do you, I, it seemed like you might not have seen that Jonah Hill news. I don't know if you did or did you? Did you have any thoughts on it? Or are you excited for the uh, future iteration of Batman? I mean, I am. But look what happened with Joker. So I mean, like I guess. <laughs> yeah, you got to say you, 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 Yeah, you just got to temper all your expectations, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I love. I still love the actors. You know, same with this film. Like I loved Joaquin, and I still do. And I thought he did a great job. So I'm excited for Jonah and Robert. I think it'll be really cool if they get to team up. I am too. They're two of my favorite actors, and I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen all the Planet of the Apes movies or some of them, but like, I think like if Matt Reeves can somehow like convey a lot of emotion through <laughs> CGI apes, then he can probably uh, really elicit some pretty special things out of actors as good as Robert Pattinson and Jonah Hill. So I'm uh, very excited about that. Uh, Nick, any parting thoughts on Joker before we wrap up? Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> this is the hardest. This is the hardest part. Yeah, you know, I. I I guess I'm just um, I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. I'm sad because you know we we talk about all the really exceptionally talented actors that are in this film, and you think like, wow, I'm going to get 
Joaquin Phoenix, Robert De Niro, Sassy mm-hmm. Beats, Brian Tyree Hill, Bill Camp, Mark Maron, Bill Camp, Shea Wiggum, go down the list. And you're like, how could this possibly flop? <laughs> yeah, and then and here we are. Um, so it was disappointing. You know, uh, there's another quote from Todd Phillips that just basically said that, like, we didn't make the movie to push buttons. And I'm sitting here telling you that I believe it's provocation for the sake of it. So <laughs> clearly I disagree. Um, there are good things about it. Again, the, the, the score is overwhelming. Um, I think some of the scenes are really powerful. The, the scene where he kills the yellow King is, and then, you know, they, they have the interaction. It's the one true time where I really thought he acted like the Joker when he had already committed murder, but he, he didn't have any grievance with this guy. So we're just going to kind of like ham it up. And, you know, that was the one time in two and a half hours or however long the movie was that the audience all laughed. Uh, and it's dark comedy there. It's yeah. really exceptionally dark comedy there, but it got the laugh. And so that, that was the time I felt like maybe that was the closest that Phoenix and Phillips ever got to sort of getting to what that character gets at. Um, on the whole, I think it's a missed opportunity. I'm disappointed. Um, there are things that work and I feel like there's more that don't. So, uh, it's called a missed opportunity. Sure. All right, Lisa, yeah. how, how are you feeling now that you've got to talk this out for an hour? Have you kind of... Right, right. I know. I know. Kind of mimicking mimicking Nick's summary, too. I feel the same way. I'm glad I actually went on the podcast today because it was such... <laughs> it seems like you've been, going through, you've been like, going through a little bit of an existential crisis the last few days, I think. I mean, this is what I get for airing out that I was very excited for this film, you know? <laughs> this is what I get for being on social media, but, you know... I feel the same way as Nick, you know, it feels like it was a missed opportunity. I wouldn't say that the film was bad. I would still recommend that people see it. I think it's intense. Um, I think if this is the first film you're watching and realizing Joaquin is a great performance that I feel really bad for you. Um, Because I saw this tweet earlier today. I think I quote tweeted it. It said like, can you imagine if you were never really here, got even like a quarter of the attention that (laughs) the Joker got? And I wish kind of, that attention went to that or like the master, you know, but, um, you know, like Nick said, I love the score. I love the music choices. Um, I smirked like a little kid during that scene where he was standing on top, Joaquin was standing on top of the car and he, um, he, he kind of uses his finger is to get the blood from inside his mouth uh, and a, draws the smile. That is an image. Spo- spoiler. But, um, I smirked and I'm like, am I allowed to smirk? Like this is the best scene. Um, <laughs> Cinematography was great. It only threw me off that it was in the seven. It was supposed to take take place in the seventies, correct? Late seventies, early eighties. It doesn't. Late seventies, but it felt so modern. So that's my only like, I guess, issue with that. But I recommend everyone seeing it. It feels like a really good airplane movie too. So hopefully, (laughs) hopefully in like a month or two, it'll be a really good airplane movie for everyone on JetBlue and Delta. So. Yeah, we'll see. There we go. Definitely watch that one right next to like a baby. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess I, I guess I'll, I'm glad you mentioned the cinematography again because I mean it, we've already gone an hour, so I don't really feel the need to dive too deep into it. But I do genuinely think it's cool that the director of The Hangover uh, at least had showed the ability to like create some really cool shots and make a movie that looked like this good and was on the mm-hmm. level of some of these Scorsese movies, even in that respect. And right. I guess I'm like I'm I'm glad they tried. You know I. I respect the innovation within the genre, and it's cool if more people can kind of pull stuff off like that. Like, yeah, something like Black Panther was its own different kind of superhero movie that aspired to something better and was awarded critically. And, hey, we didn't even really talk about Oscars and stuff. Like, there's a chance this movie – this won the the Golden Lion Award at the Venice Film Festival. Crazy, yeah. And, and, like, the movies that win that usually get nominated for Best Picture. I mean, this might be a little too divisive for that to happen. Uh, but, like, there's a chance that, like, Joaquin might get nominated, and there might be a few others uh, w- within within that. And that's a thing that could happen, and even if – I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Like I'm, I'm glad that superhero movies aspire to that kind of thing. I just wish this had just like gone about it a little differently. And I, but I, 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 I respect them trying to do something else. Uh, uh, Nick, do you have anything you want to plug or any other thing you can plug your social media? Like I said earlier, if you have a recommendation for something else you're watching now that you suggest other people check out, we're now doing that kind of, we're now doing that kind of thing at this part of the podcast. (laughs) Well, always Sunday's back. So we get that. Uh, I want to say that Mr. Robot came back on Sunday night. Is that right? I gave up on Mr. Robot after season two. Okay. No, I'm I'm still up to date minus, I guess where the, the season 
the, the final season's uh, premiere. Yes. So I need to catch up on that. Robot, uh, my fiance is currently watching Stranger Things. I caught like two episodes <laughs> of that for the first time. That scene's wild. Um, you, you never watch it? You just watch it? No, I, I feel like TV's like homework at this point. We're like, I hope <laughs> it gets sucked into something because if I don't, people are like, you got to watch this. It just feels like homework. I'm watching Succession. Succession's great. I mean, Succession's um, the best show on television. Yes. Listen, what are you watching? <laughs> um, I just finished. Yeah, now that, now, now, now that you don't have anything else to plug that's coming, you got to give us something good. Um, I just finished Big Mouth season three, which I really liked. I don't think it was their funniest season yet, but it felt really important, the discussions they had in it. And I am also really excited for Marriage Story coming out soon. I'm hoping being in the L.A. area, I get to see it earlier than everyone else so I can have something to talk about and mull over and the lighthouse coming up. I'm really excited for I hate you. I mean, marriage story is like my, <laughs> marriage story is like my number one, most anticipated of the year. And like, I, I'm, I'm probably going to like drive to Miami. Like I did last year for Roma. If they like put it in a theater, like if it's like the landmark in Miami got Roma, like when most theaters got Roma last year before Netflix did, and I drove all the way to Miami for it, which right. I mean, but my, you know what that is. Cause you're from South Florida. I, I don't yes. know, Nick, I don't know. I know you lived in Orlando for like five years now, so I don't know how well you know your South Florida geography in Southeast Florida that is, but like, I mean, West Palm, the like Coral Gables is like could be two hours with even a little bit of traffic. So, I mean, I'm yes. willing, I'm, I'm willing to do that with that, or maybe even The Irishman, or uh, or a couple of these other Netflix movies if it comes to it. So, uh, we'll we'll, ju- we'll just have to see about that. But I mean, I'm not going to go. I'm, I don't ever go too far into the recommendation corner. But I got to I, I got to echo Nick. Succession's the best show on television. Everyone should watch. Uh, the season finale is coming up next week, so everyone can kind of binge it before then. Uh, uh, as usual, I can find me on Twitter at Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y, and the podcast Rewind Movie Pod. So, uh, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. I hope we'll see you again at some point during award season. So uh, coming up next week, though, we will have a podcast with uh, my friend Josh Brown on Gemini Man. So for those of you who still who have still not lost faith in Will Smith, you still have you can go watch that and listen to us talk about it. I'm trying to temper. I'm not really having to, I'm not having to put any effort into tempering my expectations. So at the best case scenarios, I'm pleasantly surprised and you can, everyone can tune into that and find out. But uh, thanks again, Alyssa and Nick for joining me. Everyone stay tuned for next time.